Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blatant Homers and Podcast here. Uh, it's uh, heading into the Sweet 16 of uh, the 2019 NCAA tournament. The Oklahoma Sooners have been eliminated, but we're going to uh, talk about it anyway, preview the rest of the tournament with uh, our friend Matt Zimmick of uh, College Basketball Today. He's been good enough to come on and talk with us about the first couple rounds. So now let's uh, bring him on to look ahead to what's uh, weighing us the rest of the way here. So let's go ahead and welcome him on. Matt, how you doing? All right, I'm. I'm been writing a lot of things in chalk the past forty eight hours. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I know that a lot of people were kind of saying they felt like before the tournament that it was going to be very, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, very chalky, like you mentioned, and it really kind of um, held up. You know, I mean, there weren't a ton of surprises out there, but did anything kind of catch your eye, or uh, you know, did you have any just kind of general takeaways from the first uh, two rounds? Well, you know, last week I, I got on here with, with your show and uh, talked about how lazy a bracket this was. And when you have a lazy bracket, you're going to get results like this. You know, the, these teams, the clusters of teams, had uh, in many cases had known each other before. And not all of them played, uh, but some of them did. And like, you know, Minnesota against Michigan State, that's exactly how you get the higher seed to go through. When the higher seed has a familiar scouting report and another kind of interesting twist this wasn't lazy bracketing but it nevertheless bore out the point about you know familiar teams uh being uh helped as a higher seed you know north carolina against washington that, that's a interconference matchup north carolina is not used to washington but it sure is used to the 2-3 zone from syracuse so that really helped north carolina in that game but you know so you've had a lot of matchups which were similar to last year's tournament or had conference similarities, uh, a good bracket will freshen up the pot of matchups. And and this this year's tournament really didn't. And we're going to get some familiar matchups in the Sweet 16, such as Gonzaga-Florida State, which is a rematch of last year. So, you know, this was just not a creative bracket. And when you don't have a creative bracket – you don't have the most interesting matchups possible. I, you know, consider as an example uh, Kansas State uh, getting thrown into a sub-regional in San Jose, uh, where Oregon was, and also where Wisconsin was. I mean, that that little four-team cluster in San Jose with Oregon, Irvine, Kansas State without Dean Wade, and then Wisconsin. That was set up for Oregon to do well, and. I mean, and, and people noticed that before the tournament, and that's you know, so that's a cluster, which did create one of the two, or did create the single double-digit seed in the Sweet 16. But no one's surprised about it. You know, p- plenty of people saw Oregon over Wisconsin coming, and plenty of people saw that Kansas State was damaged goods without Dean Wade. So I mean, if you're if you're trying to make a bracket which has balance, uh, and is trying to not only reward higher seeds, but also, you know, make things interesting. It's just at at every turn you could see, well, it certainly looks set up for this team. And even with Oregon, it it was all set up for Oregon to do well. I mean, I don't think anyone's really doing any revisionist history about Oregon right now relative to the start of the tournament when they saw the bracket on Selection Sunday. I mean, I think a lot of people looked at that and felt Oregon would go through. So – when the twelve, when the one twelve seed in a tournament otherwise dominated by chalk, you know we have four two versus three regional semifinals 
Uh, I think the only time that's happened before was 2009. I could be wrong. I mean, I know it did happen in 09. I'm not sure if it happened in any other year. But when you get that much chalk and yet the 112 seed doesn't really feel like a surprise, what does that say about the bracket? So that that really is the foremost takeaway I have. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was actually at the uh, first two rounds in Tulsa. I realized I was just there for the games on Friday. And, uh, you know, I mean, we didn't have anything that was really – even that competitive, I guess the uh, the uh, Iowa State Ohio State game, but I mean there was just a lot of uh, that was the only only one. Yeah, the exactly. two the two games on Sunday were snoozers as well. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, I guess from an entertainment standpoint, uh, you know, that was a little lacking. But you know, I think I guess the flip side of that though is you know we've got a lot of matchups here where you've got big time brand names, you know, up going up against each other or, you know, uh, rematch, you know, I guess in one case, you know, rematch from the regular season. But I mean, I don't know. It feels to me though, like the sweet 16, I mean, there are a lot of heavy hitters out there. There are. And that of course is the good side about not having too many upsets the first week. You know, we all like an NCAA tournament upset. We like a 15 over a two, you know, especially when it's Duke or North Carolina or somebody like that. We all like the big upset. No one's saying we, we don't like it or that we shouldn't have one. But on the other side, you don't want a 12 versus an 8 in, in the Sweet 16. You know, that's also not really one of the charms of the tournament. You want a few upsets, you know, sprinkled across the bracket in balance. You don't, but you don't want a 12 versus an 8 and then an 11 versus a 10. You know, you don't want the South Regional from last year when you had a 5, a 7, a 9, and an 11, you want a couple big names, and then you want one or two, you know, cute underdog Cinderella stories. So, you know, there, there is a happy medium to all this. And I think that a lot of people get caught up in, well, the top seeds didn't fall. Uh, you know, uh, okay, there weren't, you know, the, there wasn't the huge mega upset. So, yeah, that took away somewhat from the tournament. But it's really more of, do you have competitive games? You know, did the top seeds get pushed? And, like, Tennessee got pushed in both of its games by double-digit seeds, 15th-seeded Colgate and 10th-seeded Iowa. You know, so that was actually interesting, even though the, the two-seed didn't fall. So you want an occasional upset sprinkled through the bracket. You want the top seeds to get a good, vigorous challenge. But you do want most of the high-end seeds to advance to the Sweet 16. And so hopefully, yes, on Thursday and Friday – you know, we are going to get these heavyweight matchups that will deliver the goods, and that will certainly change the way people view this 2019 NCAA tournament. Well, one team that definitely got pushed on Sunday was uh, were the Duke Blue Devils. Uh, you know, they had that one-point escape win over uh, Central Florida. They move on to uh, play Virginia Tech now in the uh, Sweet 16, uh, one of the games there on Friday, I believe, at uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Um question here would be first of all uh did duke show you anything that uh you know made you start questioning their status as as the you know front runner in the tournament and if so i mean how how well is uh you know virginia tech suited to take advantage of that well the, let's start with the virginia tech matchup virginia tech beat duke and zion was out but also Justin Robinson, Virginia Tech's best player, was out. So it's not as though it was just about Zion. Virginia Tech didn't have its best player. So, so this matchup's going to be, could, or at least it could be, very different in terms of the dynamics. And also you're going to have plenty of Hokies making that very short trip to Washington, D.C. So 
I can certainly see Buzz Williams, you know, getting his team sky high, having the great plan. It's going to be a familiar scouting report for both coaches. Uh, that's kind of that's probably going to help Duke a little bit. But I mean, Buzz Williams, what he's done at Virginia Tech, this is only the second Sweet 16 ever for Virginia Tech. The only other one was 1967. So you know that Virginia Tech is capable of something special. Uh, the the thing with now to get to Duke. You know, the, the, the bugaboo with this team has always been three-point shooting. And you could see UCF bait Duke into taking threes. I mean, UCF was inviting Duke you know, to have a, you know endless, bottomless buffet. You know, this was old country buffet. Eat everything you want beyond the three-point line. And Duke had to get to a point where you know, it had to turn down those wide, wide, wide-open threes to take the ball to the rim. And so that, is, that will continue to be a thing if, if Duke can't hit a reasonable amount of shots early in games. So that, that's really the pressure point, and that is how not only Virginia Tech, but then you think about possibly Michigan State in the, in the regional final on next Sunday, if that happens. You know, that is the very clear path for Duke to get knocked off. And, and I know we're talking about Duke right now, Alan, but it's really the same thing with Kentucky. Kentucky was 3 of 13 mm-hmm. from 3 against Wofford, you know, Kentucky's going to have to make more than three triples to beat Houston. And it will also need to be, need to make more than three triples to beat North Carolina. So perimeter shooting for a number of these teams is really the, the worry. And these teams are going to have to figure out, you know, all right, teams are going to give us some threes and we're going to have to hit some, but we also have to figure out that when teams bait us into taking those threes, you know, can we still find a way to get the ball to the basket and, you know, impose our will on the opponent? So that is certainly the foremost worry for Duke uh, coming into the Virginia Tech game. Yeah, and uh, speaking of a team that shoots a lot of threes uh, and makes a lot of threes, LSU, they've got plenty of outside shooting, a really talented team. Uh, they're taking on uh, Michigan State there in the other Sweet 16 matchup in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, I'm kind of rooting for um lsu to pull this one off just out of the kind of uh awkwardness factor that it would bring up with the, everything that's going on with will wade but what's your take on that matchup well you know given the media firestorm surrounding tom Izzo over the weekend i mean this might be the media's meteor star game mm-hmm. you know the game the game which you know just everybody in the press will just try to ignore uh so that i mean that's one angle on this game but uh you know, Tony Benford has impressed me. I mean, LSU looked very organized for most of the Maryland game. Now, now of course, when Mark Turgeon went to the zone, LSU did get lost. So, I mean, that's something that Benford will look at and see, you know, what if uh, Izzo, you know, tries to, to shake things up a little bit. But for the most part, I've seen an, an LSU team that was organized, ready to meet challenges. LSU has been very good at the foul line late in games. I mean, this is a team that has fundamentally stayed together, looked very poised, had the right answers. Tremont Waters, who, by the way, will be returning to Georgetown for this game. I mean, he will be returning to the arena where you know he was once supposed to become a star for the Hoyas. Uh, he has been very under control in this tournament, and you know the, the the matchup between Tremont Waters and Cassius Winston alone will be worth the price of admission in that game. I cannot wait to see those two go head-to-head. And the, and the winner of that matchup very likely will decide who wins this game. I mean, the other matchup that I'm really interested in is Naz Reed against Nick Ward, the two big men. 
And Reed, you know, Reed has 27 foot shooting range. Reed can bang in threes from a long ways away. And so if he can draw Ward away from the basket so that Waters and also Skyler Mays can, can get to the 10, uh, that, that's going to be one of the pressure points that LSU is going to try to exploit. Yeah, uh, Michigan State is a six-point favorite in this game, which uh, is kind of surprising. And to me, I think that's an indication of how uh, Vegas, the linesmakers, see the, the coaching matchup here because, you know, I mean, obviously Izzo has such a uh, renowned uh, reputation as a strategist in this tournament. Um, you still feeling Duke, or uh, you, you uh, lean a different way after uh, what you saw so far? You know, I, I can, you know, there are some upsets you can see and there are some that you can't. And I can certainly see Virginia Tech winning. However, what do we always say about the NCAA tournament for the, for the really high-end teams? After, if you were able to survive a game, you know, when you were lucky to get through, and I mean the classic example being 1995 UCLA with Tyus Edney. You know, it, it, remember that UCLA had not been to a Final Four since 1980, uh, entering that 1995 NCAA tournament. There was a lot of pressure on Jim Herrick to finally get to the Final Four at UCLA. You know, it got crushed by Bob Knight in Indiana in the 1992 West Final in Albuquerque. So there was so much pressure on the Bruins. But then once the Tyus Edney thing happened against Missouri in the second round, it's just the pressure went away. You know, ah, we got through it. Now let's just play ball. And they dump trucked. Mississippi State and UConn to get to the Final Four and then powered their way past Oklahoma State and then Arkansas to win the national title. So, you know, I if history is a guide, Duke surviving that game likely, I mean, there are no guarantees, of course, it is March, but likely Duke surviving that game means that the Blue Devils, not necessarily are going to win the national title, but that they're definitely going to power through this weekend, fix what ails them, and get to the Final Four. The other thing is that Duke does not have to deal with Taco Fall. I mean, and, and we need to stop for a moment and realize how different a game this was when Taco Fall was mm-hmm. on and off the court. Two totally different games. Duke isn't going to have to deal with that unique problem uh, against Virginia Tech or LSU or Michigan State, any of the teams uh, it will or might face this upcoming weekend. All right. So then let's move on to uh, the other bracket, the West. Um, you know, really uh, holding form here again. You've got uh, the one C Gonzaga versus Florida State. Uh, the other side, Texas Tech versus Michigan. Um, you know, Florida State. Uh, I kind of foresaw them. Uh, you know, kind of rolling Murray State, despite uh, you know all the success that Murray State had there in the uh, first round versus uh, Marquette. Uh, Florida State's just a big athletic team. Uh, you know, stark contrast to uh, Marquette, uh, but. You know, I think a lot of their advantages are really kind of neutralized by Gonzaga's front line. Well, and one could say that Gonzaga's front line could be neutralized by yes. Cabin Gelly and, and, and Florida State. And, you know, if you, and, and the thing to remember about the West Regional in general, it's almost exactly the same as last year. Gonzaga, Florida State in one West Regional semifinal in Southern California. And then the other one, you have Michigan against a school from Texas. Uh, last year, it was Texas and M. So a lot of similarities. And so, you know, last year, Florida State bodied up Gonzaga and physically was the physically superior team. But uh, Gonzaga, you know, is a better team this year. And you have Brandon Clark. 
he's probably going to be the difference maker. And he's a guy who is playing, you know, not just playing, but playing at his very best. I mean, he dominated Baylor, uh, you know, had a career game in the NCAA tournament. And as I did remark on our show a week ago, the simple fact that Gonzaga lost to Florida State in last year's NCAA tournament, also in the Sweet 16, also in a West Regional semifinal, also in Southern California, it's going to be very similar. I mean, the venue will be different, but it's only going to be a few miles away. You know, you're going from the Staples Center to the Honda Center or whatever that building is named right now. It might be named something mm-hmm. different. But Gonzaga's, you know, had that memory. Now that game has actually come to pass. Gonzaga, it's, it's kind of like, and I mean, we've, we've talked, we've had college football podcasts before. This is going to remind me, Alan, of the LSU-Alabama rematch in the 2012 BCS National Championship game. You know, LSU won the regular season matchup, and it's not as though LSU didn't really deeply, passionately want the rematch, but Alabama came to that with an extra level of fire, not because Nick Saban coached better than Les Miles did, but just because that memory stuck in Alabama's craw, and there's just a natural impetus, a natural fuel that comes from losing, which which Gonzaga is going to have and Florida State will not. And I, I keep going to that reason as the reason uh, Gonzaga is going to win that game. Yeah, uh, I was, I you know, I worry a little bit about their uh, their guard play with Perkins there, but uh, you know, it's it's really a, a, just a good solid team all around. Um, the other matchup, this one could be just a, a doozy of a heavyweight, uh, you know, kind of rock fight between Texas Tech and Michigan. Um, I was impressed by what I saw out of the Red Raiders in Tulsa, though. I, I I was too, and you know, the question, I mean. You know, I think that losing early in the Big 12 tournament uh, was a blessing. And, you know, the people in Ames, Iowa, Iowa State needs to lose in the Big 12 (laughs) tournament for once. You know, this is really the moral of the story. Iowa State needs to stink in the Big 12 tournament one of these times. You know, the people in Ames need to just save their money, not travel to Kansas City, give other teams the home game so that Iowa State can do well in the NCAA tournament because Iowa State simply does not carry over its Big 12 tournament performance to the NCAA tournament. And so back to Texas Tech, losing early was great. This is a young team. You and I know that it was picked seventh in the preseason Big 12 poll, so not much was expected. You know, So if you're picked to be seventh in the Big 12, you're expected to maybe be an 11 seed, barely get in. But as we know, Texas Tech won the Big 12, got a three seed. Uh, so that early loss enabled this team really to reset get some rest, get away from basketball for a little bit. It needed that break. And we saw a very refreshed team just absolutely romp through those first two games. Now, the, 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 the tempering point here is that, you know, Buffalo, good team, got a very lopsided win uh, over Arizona State, lived up to its number six seed, but wasn't in the same heavyweight class as Texas Tech. That's pretty clear. Uh, and Buffalo, you know, obviously is a, had a, has a lot of good scores, skilled, diverse, can attack on offense from various angles. But defense, defense is not what Buffalo does. And Texas Tech was able to grind Buffalo in a very fine powder. So with Michigan, you have a very different challenge from the one posed by Buffalo. And so, you know, it, it does shape up as a rock fight. Looks like a game that's going to be played in the mid-50s maybe the very low 60s. It's going to be one or two possessions. 
Uh, and so, you know, the thing that I, that's hard for me to shake is that, you know, Michigan struggled to shoot the three in last year's NCAA tournament, but came through every close scrape. And, you know, I, I do think that if we get down to the final two minutes of this game, and I think we will, Michigan better have, you know, like a five point lead. I think that if Michigan is tied or, or one possession behind, uh, the Wolverines are going to, are going to squeeze the rock a little too tightly. They're going to wonder if this dream is slipping away from them. And I think Texas tech is going to, going to feel the moment and rise up to it. I think Michigan is the team which needs to be leading late. I think if it's a tie, you know, I would lean toward Texas tech, but if, if, uh, if Michigan needs to have a, a small to modest working margin, and I think needs to rely on its NCAA tournament experience at this stage of the tournament uh, to, to be able to win that game. And I think that Xavier Simpson, uh, the, the point guard for Michigan, he's going to have to set the tone uh, in this game. And one thing to, to note about Simpson, you know, Cassius Winston outplayed him three times this year, uh, twice uh, in the regular season and then in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, just over uh, a week ago. So he doesn't have a brutal point guard matchup this time. This is the matchup that he needs to win, and he's going to need to win that to offset what Jarrett Culver is going to be able to do against Michigan's front court. So Xavier Simpson, to me, he is the central figure on the floor in that Michigan-Texas Tech game, which I expect to be very, very close throughout. Yeah, Vegas has uh, Michigan is just a small two point favorite, so uh, really close to a toss up there. Um, I still feel like Gonzaga takes down Texas Tech to take this region, but I wanted to get your take. Yeah, nothing has changed for me in that regard. Had Gonzaga or Texas Tech before, and uh, you know, anticipated Michigan and uh, Florida State being there, but I just think that Michigan does not have. Uh, I mean, Michigan has a run in it, but boy, the, it just the odds, the Michigan's margin for error is, is small. And uh, Texas Tech is a team that plays good, good enough defense to take those margins away from Michigan. But I think Gonzaga, should it get past Florida State, uh, would, would remain the favorite in that region. I do love this region more than any other. I think this is the one region where you look at four teams and you say any four can make the Final Four. I don't, I'm, I'm not really sold on that idea, at least not to the same extent in any of their other three regions. I mean, Virginia Tech could certainly of getting to the Final Four, but the, the, the percentages I'd assign to the Hokies or also, let's say, Houston or Auburn uh, in the Midwest, the percentages are much smaller. But, but Florida State, Texas Tech, they are, I, I really fundamentally put them on equal footing to the teams that they're going to play in the Sweet 16 on Thursday. All right, moving on to the South, where they're going to be playing in Louisville. Um, first game, you've got, uh, or pardon me, yeah, the one uh, twelve matchup that we were talking about earlier, Virginia versus Oregon. Then also uh, the 2-3 game there is Tennessee-Purdue. Um, you know, Oregon is the closest thing to a Cinderella here, and it's really not. Um, but Virginia also, you know, I think that after that kind of first round uh, game where they were trailing, I believe Gardner Webb at the half, and they they kind of took off there in the second half, seemed like they really uh, kind of shook off what kind of ever kind of jitters or hangover there was from that uh, stunning upset last year against uh, Mal- uh, Maryland Baltimore County, and moved on. And I I, I like how they're playing right now. 
you know, I mean, the, Virginia definitely locked in on defense. Uh, I mean, that, I mean, that's, you know, obviously the centerpiece of what Virginia does. But I also, I think the best player for Virginia, some will say Mamadi Diakite with his length. I mean, he, he just bothered Oklahoma all game long with his length. But Ty Jerome, mm-hmm. Ty Jerome played the way I remember John Stockton playing. You know, he had that kind of control over the tempo of the game, saw the floor. You might, and, you know, the, the one sequence that's been playing again and again and again on the highlight reels was when Jerome made a one-handed steal, a one-handed interception of a pass, dribbled behind his back, made a one-hand shove pass, which was really the Stocktonian uh, Utah Jazz part of that play, and it led to Kyle Guy going behind his back, dropping the ball off for a beautiful sequence. I mean, it was, you know, I, I love those 90s jazz teams, and I got up out of my chair when I watched that sequence. So, I mean, Ty Jerome is one of those guys who doesn't have to score to dominate a game. And so his command of the floor, boy, if that stays in place for Virginia, Cavs are going to get to the Final Four. Um, the, the other really good thing for Virginia might not seem like a good thing, but it's part of that whole economy of the tournament, you know, having a bad game but still winning then you're going to probably play better the next time. Kyle Guy and DeAndre Hunter did not shoot well against Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So to me, if I'm looking at this from Virginia's point of view, that's a great thing to, to win a game when they don't shoot well. You're two, really, I think you're two best scorers. Guy outside, Hunter outside and inside. You know, so they should have a much better shooting game, uh, if not against Oregon, you know, certainly at some point in this weekend. So, you know, the, the defense is there. Ty Jerome's command of the floor is there. Guy and Hunter can shoot a lot better. You get a double-digit seed in the Sweet 16. Boy, it, it is definitely lining up for Virginia. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the Cavs really cannot complain about their situation. Yeah, and then looking in the uh, other side of the bracket there, it's Tennessee and Purdue. Uh, Tennessee is just a small one-point favorite, you know, uh, one thing about Purdue, you mentioned, uh, you know, getting a good game or pardon me, getting a bad game out of the way and then moving on. Purdue had a really good game <laughs> in uh, the round of 32, which uh, could be trouble, I think, uh, for him going forward uh, against Tennessee. It could be. I think that the, the, the main thing about this game, yeah, the main thing I want to say, and I wrote about this at CBBToday.com, is that to me of the eight Sweet 16 games, this is the one that means the most for both teams. You know, there are several games where you know one team really, really needs it. Like you know, Kentucky hasn't been to the Final Four in four years, so Wild Big Blue Nation needs to beat Houston. And uh, there, you know, there are other games like you know Duke with with all the expectations and with Zion. You know, it's 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 really national championship or bust. But certainly if Duke can't get to the Final Four, you know, that's a ton of pressure. Whereas Virginia Tech and Oregon and some of these other teams, Auburn, they're just playing with house money. So the one game where both teams really, really need to win, it's Purdue-Tennessee. On, for, on the Purdue side, Matt Painter has been to four Sweet 16s. He is 0-4 in regional semifinals. So he needs to break that duck, get a win, move to his first elite eight, it would be Purdue's first elite eight since 2000. So, you know, Purdue, you expect to be at the elite eight more frequently than once every nine years. So 
Purdue needs to get across this threshold. And of course, the program hasn't been to a Final Four since 1980. So this means a ton to Purdue. And then for Tennessee, well, of course, the Vols have never been to the Final Four. And they have a veteran group. They survived an overtime scare. They also survived that horrible foul call on the three-point shot, which was a five-point play because Tennessee had an easy fast-break bucket going the other way. So the, the Vols you know, you know, were given a nasty break, somehow overcame it. The ball didn't lie. And here they are, two wins from the program's first-ever Final Four. So the stakes are just enormously high for this game. It is the ultimate pressure cooker in the Sweet 16. I cannot wait for this game. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling Tennessee and Virginia still with Virginia um, winning the uh, going to the Final Four. What's your take? Still, I'm still on that same track, and I do think that Tennessee, you know, getting through a high – now coming to the Sweet 16, the, the Vols, I think, are very much uh, due for a really solid 40-minute performance as opposed to just the 20 minutes they played in the first half against Iowa before they lost focus in the second half. All, that, all right, then moving down, uh, last region here in Midwest, uh, playing Kansas City. Uh, we've got North Carolina and Auburn on one side, uh, Houston and Kentucky on the other side. Let's start off with the Tar, Tar Heels and Tigers. Uh, I believe this is around a uh, five-point spread, if I remember correctly. Yes, uh, North Carolina is favored by five points. Um, you know, I mean, gosh, man, Bruce Pearl had Auburn firing on all cylinders there uh, in the uh, at least in the second in the second round. And we go back. I mean, this is a we, it's a repetitive theme, but it's a theme worth repeating, Alan. So Auburn, you know, collapsed against New Mexico State. Was extremely lucky to get through that game. If you saw the CBS cameras in the Auburn locker room after that game, the players were downtrodden. You know, they were dejected. It felt like a loss. You know, they, they, everyone knew how much they had all screwed up, uh, and yet, but that they got away with it. You know, they got a reprieve. And so that is really the ideal way. I mean, a coach loves that in March to get away with, with a win that when you probably should have lost. So Bruce Pearl was able to use that as fuel, and of course we saw the results against Kansas. Uh, in terms of this game against North Carolina, well, you remember, Alan, for two games in basketball history. One, the 1983 Pistons-Nuggets game that ended 186-184, and then on the college level, the 1990 West Regional Final in Oakland between Loyola, Marymount, and UNLV. Now I'm not saying that Auburn and North Carolina are going to score – that many points but it, you know if we get our dream game in terms of how it plays out both teams will score over 100 points i mean this is the indianapolis 500 of sweet 16 games and really the, that loyola marymount unlv game 29 years ago that's the first thing i think of when i see auburn and carolina two teams that totally want to run totally want to push the ball get in the open floor take the ball right out of the basket and just shove the ball right down the court. I mean, you have, you have the, the Midwest regional is so fascinating because you have two games that are total, that are polar opposites, you know, mm-hmm. Houston and Kentucky is going to be a 40 minute rugby scrum under the basket. Every rebound is going to be world war three. I mean, you, you know, those teams build themselves around effort and energy and defense and toughness you know, Kelvin Sampson teams, you know this from his days at Oklahoma. 
that Oklahoma wins won in his time and made the 2002 Final Four based on toughness and defense and effort, and we're going to work harder than you. And you can see that uh, in Houston this year. I mean, just you know, Houston just wore down Ohio State with its waves of bodies. So Auburn, North Carolina, Indianapolis 500, Houston, Kentucky, rugby scrum. It's just going to be a fascinating set of contrasts. In terms of looking at the Auburn-Carolina game, just in terms of who's going to win, you know, North Carolina has set the standard for playing up-tempo basketball. And what I always like to say is when you get two teams that both like to do the same thing, the team that does the same thing better is a team you have to trust. And North Carolina has certainly earned that trust. It doesn't mean Auburn's chopped liver. Auburn could certainly win this game. You know, I mean, there are going to be a lot of three-point shots taken in this game. And if Jared Harper, Auburn's point guard, is able to outduel Kobe White, Auburn could definitely win. But but just on a larger general level, Auburn and North Carolina both love to do this same thing. Carolina is generally better at doing that thing to to at least a slight to moderate degree. So I have to give Carolina the edge there. Then the other late game in the Midwest region there in Kansas City, uh, Houston and Kentucky. Kentucky is actually only a two-and-a-half-point favorite, which is a little surprising or, or not what you would have expected probably before the tournament started. But, uh, you know, the injury to P.J. Washington, I think, is uh, weighing heavily on this line. It is. And so, you know, when I look at Kentucky, I, I, I look at, you know, a situation in which uh, – I think it can still win this game without PJ Washington. And that's only because Wofford really pushed the Wildcats in the previous round. And you might recall, you know, the, Kentucky has played Wichita state in this tournament, in the NCAA tournament twice this decade. Most people will probably remember the 2014 game because Kentucky was an eight seed and people were counting out the cats. And Wichita State was unbeaten and a number one seed, and it was all very new and different. And that was an epic game, of course. But they played another game in 2017 when Kentucky was a two seed, and that game was a fist fight. That that was a backyard brawl, and it was ugly. And Kentucky didn't shoot well, but Kentucky still came through because it it focused on defense, and more specifically, it focused on that end of the floor and didn't allow that to, to negative. I mean, it didn't allow the any of its offensive or shooting struggles to negatively affect how it played defense. And that that's really one of the fascinating things you see in March. Do teams allow struggles on offense to affect how they play on defense? And the great teams are able to fully invest and stay locked in on defense when their shots aren't dropping. I mean, that a, a good example of that. Wing defense, trusted that against Irvine, and won. So Kentucky did that against Wofford. And so that is really what gives Kentucky, uh, in my mind, an advantage over Houston. And I think, you know, Kentucky, having come through that Wofford game, because it was so difficult, because P.J. Washington wasn't there, I think that should give Kentucky, you know, all the the, uh, confidence and belief it needs to pull out a narrow win in that game. Now, of course, if Kentucky goes against North Carolina – you're talking about a different equation in terms of skill and shot-making ability. So I think that P.J. Washington will definitely be needed against North Carolina. But I think against Houston, in what's going to be a rough-and-tumble game, the fact that Kentucky does have Reed Travis, does have tremendous perimeter defenders such as Ashton Higgins, uh, you know, I, I do think that Kentucky 
still has enough to win, which is probably going to be a very, very close game. It's going to be a game that's going to be a lot like Texas Tech against Michigan, only with, I think, bigger, more muscular dudes you know, near the paint. But, but the, the, both of those games are just going to be out-and-out out wars in the paint. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, this is the only region really where I'm kind of waffling a little bit. Uh, you know, I had Kent- I picked Kentucky before uh, last, before the first two rounds. That was, of course, before I knew about the P.J. Washington injury. Uh, but I still think I like the Wildcats here to uh, pull out in the uh, Elite Eight over North Carolina. Uh, what, what are you seeing? Well, I, I do think that I do think that it's going to be Kentucky and, and uh, North Carolina when it's all said and done. And, you know, so the question is, if, if P.J. Washington is out, can Kentucky beat North Carolina? Kentucky can, but I think I'm at a point where, you know, Kentucky would – let's put it this way. Kentucky would have to shoot unusually well from three-point range in order to provide something to counterbalance Washington's absence. I think that against a team of North Carolina's caliber – uh, Washington's presence or absence is too big uh, for Kentucky to play a, a you know a normal game in terms of three-point shooting uh, and and win. So Kentucky would have to shoot above average from three, you know, relative to what it's done for most of the season to win that game without PJ Washington. I think if if, if Kentucky gets PJ Washington back for that game, you know, then I'm very comfortable picking Kentucky. But uh, it, without PJ, the Wildcats are going to need to do something probably three-point shooting above their normal average in order to beat the Tar Heels all right well so I guess you know I mean I know you had Duke Kentucky before uh for playing in the finals uh you know obviously the uh PJ Washington issue kind of throws that up in the air but uh, did you see anything uh you know that aside that changed your opinion on how uh you see the final four you know the eventual the team that uh, will eventually be cutting down the nets you know, not not really enough. I mean, because you you see, you see in this tournament, you know, escapes or weird games or combinations thereof. Like you know, Duke, as I as said earlier, Duke's not going to face tackle fall the rest of the way, and so that was just a, a a very particular matchup quirk combined with Aubrey Dawkins playing an unreal game. You know, that also mm-hmm. has to be mentioned. And and Aubrey Dawkins played an unreal game partly because. You know, he he was going against the school that he knew his father Johnny really loved, and he and he knew that, you know, he Coach K, you know, really holds the Dawkins family uh, with with great affection and and views them with a special kind of fondness. So that was a very unique chemical cocktail. So I'm not ready to say that I view Duke differently. I mean, the the, the three point shooting is the thing for Duke. And uh, I, I do think that, you know, that that will improve without tackle fall, uh, you know, so noticeably altering the way Duke uh, approach things at the offensive end of the floor. So I do think it's still Duke. I think I might trust Gonzaga a little bit more coming out of the weekend, given the way Brandon Clark is playing. But uh, if I do trust certain teams more or less than I did uh, heading into the NCAA tournament, it's only by slight degrees and measures. I don't think there's anything that's happened which fundamentally reshapes the balance of power. And in terms of Kentucky getting to the final, well, if Kentucky gets to the final four, P.J. Washington, one would think, 
would be ready to play. So, you know, if, if Kentucky, which I think can beat Houston without P.J. Washington and, and get him back in time for North Carolina, then I think we're fully on course to remain, you know, with, with the picks that I set out earlier. If P.J. Washington isn't there against North Carolina, you know, Kentucky's going to have to uh, do something to compensate. That, that's basically my main observation. Yeah, and see, I'm actually kind of feeling Gonzaga and Virginia right now, actually having having – just based on what I took in in the first two rounds, I, I but I mean they these teams all look really close to me. At least the teams right there at the top of the on the top line. So uh, really, any kind of combination there wouldn't surprise me that much. I totally agree. Totally agree. They're, 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 these are incredibly balanced brackets. Four two versus three regional semifinals, uh, and, and you know matchups that we expected, and matchups which based on history such as Virginia Tech beating Duke and Florida State beating Gonzaga last year, figure to be very close. I mean, the, the hope if things go, it's not going to be so much story in the Sweet 16 of higher seeds advancing. The playing according to form will be every game being close. So that would be something very special to see uh, after the weekend we previously had. Absolutely. Well, Matt, fill everybody in again where they can uh, catch all your content right now. So my main site is College Basketball Today, cbbtoday.com. There is a uh, podcast called CBB Coast to Coast, uh, a podcast almost as good as this one, uh, which I do with a a man named TJ Reeves, whom you can find at Buck Sideline Guy. Uh, I have stories on the Purdue-Tennessee game that I talked about. I also have a story comparing the 2019 Midwest Regional in Kansas City, the Auburn-Carolina-Houston Kentucky regional with the 1986 West regional. And so you can read that and find out the comparisons there. And I also have a piece about uh, teams that aren't making the sweet 16 on a regular basis, but should be in all the power conferences. So all of that is at college basketball today, cbbtoday.com. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks again so much for, uh, you know, all your insight here. Maybe we can do uh, one more of these to preview the Final Four? Absolutely. And so, you know, we might be doing it on April Fool's Day so we can get in some jokes there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If people aren't, aren't too uh, tired of those after, uh, you know, a day on Twitter or what have you. So, anyway, Matt, thanks so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, let's hope that these next games uh, really rock and inject, inject some extra spice into this tournament. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again to my guest, uh, Matt Zemek. Make sure to read everything that uh, he's writing over there at CBB Today. And thanks to you all for joining us, too. For the Blaine Homerism Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.